everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in, everyone that's sharing the show with their friends. I hope that you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to music and podcasts. You can find us there. You can also follow us, Plus One on Instagram, or send me a message, Plus One K-R-A-Z plus one at gmail.com. Send me some comments, send me some questions, some suggestions for guests. I appreciate all of it. I also want to send a happy new year to everybody out there. And uh, as we know, it's been a crazy year, one that will go down in history for all the horrible things that have happened um, all over the world. Um, I hope that some of you can find a silver lining in it. I know that I have been very fortunate with uh, a new family and starting this show and creating quite a bit of of music this past year using different technologies, um, trying to learn new skills. And from the different people that I've spoken to, um, quite a few people had the same response that yes, in this time period, people have been able to spend time on things they always wanted to do. Um, So that's my you know, version of seeing the the cup half full. Of course, I don't want to discount all the horrible things. And obviously so many people have died and so many people have gotten sick. So I would never have wished um, COVID or any of these things on anyone. But I just want to give thanks to everyone that's been listening and supporting this show because this has been something that's been really cool for me and uh, a great learning experience. So thank you so much. And I hope that you continue to listen to the show and share it with your friends and let people know about it. So I'm really excited about the guest on the show today. He's somebody I've gotten to know in the last seven or eight years. Um, Every winter I get to go to Mexico and be a part of Panic in La Playa. And that's a show, kind of mini festival that's thrown by the band Widespread Panic. And I instantly loved this guy as soon as I met him. His name's Dave Schools. He's the bassist of Widespread Panic, but also a great producer. Um, He's a music historian. And I was wanting to have him on the show as soon as I started this show. Um, I've had a lot of great musical conversations with him. And as soon as we start talking, it just goes deep, fast. So uh, after we met um, on that gig, subsequently we got to play a few shows together and occasionally we exchanged music. And um, I've learned a lot from him in our conversations and this one was no different. For those of you that don't know the band Widespread Panic, they were formed in the mid 80s in Athens, Georgia, playing clubs around that scene soon started touring the country and within a few years they started drawing massive crowds and to this day they sell out huge venues headline big festivals and their fan base is so hardcore Uh, not unlike the grateful dead and fish their fans will follow them all over the place take notes on their set list follow every intricacy of every song So as I've gotten to know him and sit in with the band a few times, I've also gotten to know their fans and seen this level of fandom that's really amazing. Dave's also been a part of quite a few other projects, one called the Stockholm Syndrome. He played in the Mickey Hart Band. He also played with Bob Weir on various occasions, sat in on government mule gigs. And he has a project that I really love called Hardworking Americans that included my good friend Neil Casal and also Dwayne Trucks on drums. 
He's also produced a lot of records over the years, and particularly, I loved the record called Satellite City by Kimok, which is Steve Kimok's group. Dave also put together a really cool playlist um, for this episode that includes a bunch of music he grew up on and stuff we discussed in the interview. You can find the playlist on Spotify. Just go to this episode and just in the details there below on your phone, you'll see the playlist that Dave put together. Very excited to get into this conversation, but first we're going to take a quick minute to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's a great producer, an amazing bass player, and a part of the legendary Widespread Panic. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Dave Schools. It's been a great opportunity to slow down and yeah. and be with my family and walk the dog on the beach. And, you know, it sucks. There's a lot of people that I wish I could go see and hug. Yeah. yeah. Um, family, friends, and, uh, of course, studio work. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're sitting in one right now, but uh, yeah. it, it was about six months where it just stopped. Yeah, yeah. I was calling it my soft retirement. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I do wish there was people to work with. I mean, that's, I mean, ideally working in the studio is best when you're with people in the same room. But yeah, I've, I've gotten into tinkering around with, with gear on my own and stuff, which is not the same, but, but you know. It uh, keeps me distracted. That's right. Well, I mean, I in the ideal world, we are all in the same room recording yeah. that. Uh, you know, the byproduct of the notes we play are are just the like the vibes of our auras. This is true. This colliding is true. and and I had an engineer tell me one time uh, when he found out we weren't using two inch tape, but we were going into the box. He said, "Oh man," I said. What's the problem? It's a low budget recording. He goes, Yeah, but you catch ghosts on analog tape. Right. And then he spent most of the rest of the session looking at UFO films on YouTube. <laughs> Sounds like an interesting cat. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. But you know, I'll tell you something, it's it's funny that we're talking about this because the session that I did with you and Marcus yeah. up up at Jim Scott's place was literally the last like traditional recording session I had done before this whole thing shut down. I think it was the last for me too. Last with like, you know, musicians in a room playing. That's right. And yeah. it was glorious. It was yeah. glorious. Yeah, it was. That was a really great session. What a great group of musicians, man. Oh man. Yeah. Whew. And what a great tribute. I mean, it was, you know, you know, talking about Neil Casal, it's 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 so strange because it doesn't really feel like he's gone. You know what I mean? Because there's so many of us that um, are talking about him. It's kind of like like Bruce. I feel like is in that same where it's like there's so much music. Like I never I I, I knew him for a long time and worked with him quite a bit, but still hadn't dug into how much music he was creating. And he was right. such a humble guy that he was never like waving the flag, like, this is what I'm doing, right? So you had once, but when you dig in there, there's just so much music and he touched so many people. Like when I did the the tribute concert for Neil in New York, I there was obviously a lot of familiar people, but then there was people from all different worlds 
uh, of music. And I was like, wow, he worked with that guy and like Steve Earls there. And like, like obviously the Grateful Dead side of his thing. But then hearing like his earliest, like kind of more pop rock like stuff of him singing in that whole other register that I hadn't really heard. And, um, it's interesting when you think you know somebody and you just keep discovering more and more. He was an absolute rainbow. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh, the secrets, yeah. Uh, he never, he, you're right. He never advertised them. It was, you never, you know, you meet some people and, and you get this like a sort of a walking Rolodex of other musicians. It's their form of networking. Yeah. Um, but you also get this sort of shouted out resume, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I understand that it's all just part of networking and, and I'm pretty used to it, but uh, Neil didn't do that. He did. You not. had to sort of wait for these uh, anecdotal stories to come up that were amusing. Like, you know, the time that I fetched a comb for Keith Richards. Yeah. What? You know, <laughs> that was my last day hanging out with him as he told the story of his girl at the time was working for a magazine, I think. And yep. <laughs> Keith was a feature. He hung out with Keith the entire day. And, and I was like, Oh, what was the music? And did you guys talk about your music? And he was like, no, he never mentioned he was a musician. Yeah, it's funny. It's just the way he was. But yeah. I tell you, I, I agree with you about the, the the memorial at the Capitol Theater. It really drove home the thing that I always kind of knew about Neil, which was, you know, in my brief time playing in hardworking Americans with him, uh, you know, he's like, hey, Dave, come over here. There's somebody I really want you to meet. Yeah. You know, and, and it would be somebody that I'd heard of or like, how do you guys say, oh, oh it's Neil is the fulcrum. He's the common yeah. pin here. Um, and that was just like, that's when I met Brent Rademacher. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, there's like more than a few Kevin Bacon's worth of removal. Um, <laughs> right, right. But everybody seems so familiar because if Neil hadn't introduced me to them, then I've certainly heard my share of stories about it. You know, and, and that's really what's going on with the highway butterfly record. It's like, here's a huge pool of people that knew Neil from various things. Yeah. Um, all coming together. And, and so we're all healing. And like you said earlier, we're definitely keeping Neil in the room. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I, uh, I had asked O'Teal to do a song yeah. for this record, which led to a late night phone call, which wound up being three hours of not talking about the Neil song, but reminiscing about, Colonel Bruce Hampton and Aquarium Rescue Unit days when yeah. we did show after show together. And there's something about these two guys, although they couldn't be more different. Yeah. Colonel Bruce and, and Neil Casal, um, that they brought people together and they did it in a way where the ego was just sort of they they didn't like rip people's egos off, although Bruce was certainly capable of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was more like a gentle disarming. That's a really cool way of putting it, the gentle disarming. Because it was they both have that vibe where, you know, you want to hang out. There and you know, they have this like excite this excitement about music and about like just creativity that uh we all share as musician, but, but but specifically with them, I, I could sit for hours. I remember sitting with Bruce um, at Panic in La Playa every to every, and, and it, I actually it, it's also one of those things where it hit me the year that we played and he wasn't there. How much I missed him because I would always hang out with him uh, by like the all you can eat buffet, which is That's where right. Of Bruce course, would hang, <laughs> and I would sit there. I'd like go in to get you know breakfast or whatever. Four hours later. 
you know, I'm sitting there talking to Bruce about whatever, anything from, you know, UFOs to Lightning Hopkins and everything in between, you know? Yeah. And it's a, the, 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 there's a hole that's shaped like that person. Yeah. You know, that's, that's yeah. still there. It's like we play the Fox and, you know, the first time we played, we, I guess it was New Year's Eve of 2017 at the Fox in Atlanta where, where Bruce moved on into the next level. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of trepidation in all of the widespread panic band members. Like, gosh, you know, we haven't, we haven't set foot in this place since, since Bruce's birthday and his, his exit. Um, and you know, for Dwayne and Jimmy, that was, that was really tough. I mean, Bruce was a father figure to widespread panic and we did literally hundreds of shows with aquarium rescue unit. Um, but that's nothing compared to living in a van, um, with the man and going on the road. I mean, like, you know, like Jimmy did. And, and, and these were days before cell phones. Mm -hmm. So poor Jimmy Herring with a brand new baby daughter back in Bethlehem, Georgia, um, (laughs) you know, trying to get to a, a, a payphone booth to to call home and check on his baby. But no, Bruce has decided that this shortcut goes past a gas station with the best coffee in the state. Oh, and look, there's a, there's a dog track there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and by the way, I I paid the, paid the guy who came up here and did some crazy dance. um, Everybody else's fee for the night. Hope you don't mind. (laughs) Talk about, talk about being broken and broke all at the same time. Man, but yeah, crazy. I miss these guys. Yeah. You know, I miss it. And that's the thing. I mean, if we want to talk about how we remember people, you know, the best way is just to talk about them. And, you know, in the case of musicians, we play their music yeah. and we get together. I mean, when we cut uh, Aaron Lee Tashin yeah. came out to Jim's place and recorded the Neil Casal song, uh, Traveling After Dark. And, and we cut the track and it was great. And we're sitting around and, and Aaron Lee is like, you know, it's really funny, but I felt Neil's presence in the room. And, and he's not the first person to mention that. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't surprise me because Jim Scott's place is where Neil cut his teeth. Jim was his sensei and, and taught him how to be the like guy that gets the take that doesn't need any fixes right there on the floor. Yeah. And then he was a rudder, you know, he was a rudder. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, being a part of that, what is, is such a awesome honor for me. And, uh, and Marcus and I had a good time kind of digging, digging into Neil's catalog, uh, the previous day or so, just like listening to so many of those songs for some reason, that one, stood out but there was so many it was hard to narrow it down like what song should what song should we do um that i'm really excited to hear that project oh, i i've heard just pieces obviously when i was there at the studio but i can't wait to hear what you guys what you guys did with those songs you know well it's it's been interesting i mean i think you and marcus was track number i want to say 14 or 15 wow we were that deep in okay of the original plan right right uh, and the original plan was was everybody comes to Jim's, um, yeah. so that we get his sonic template, and uh, and then you choose from a batch of people who loved Neil and played with Neil, an assortment of CR beings and yeah. and uh, you know like Jackson's band basically, yeah, and 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 circles and hardworking Americans. But yeah. COVID came and and just sort of changed everything. So 
we have to think out of the box in the time of the plague. Of course. And uh, it took about six months, but slowly but surely, people started feeling more confident and figuring out ways that they felt comfortable um, recording. So uh, we Frankenstein some remote sessions. Um, I went down to Bob Weir's place, TRI, and uh, we did a three-piece recording of one of Neil's songs. Cool. Just Bob and Jay Lane and I, and it's raw and cracked and yeah. showcases uh, his voice. But I, I guess, uh, you know, the main thing is people are interpreting these songs. Yeah. And the funny story about Weir is I had... I had picked a song for him because it mentioned Bakersfield and it was about a, a girl. I thought it might be cool. Yeah. Um, so Bob's like shedding away and, and I get this text at midnight and it just, it's from weird. And it just says, wait a minute. And, and I'm like waiting and I'm <laughs> waiting and I'm waiting. And, and then he goes, I really like this song time and trouble. I think I could, I think I could put that down to like a, a shuffle and it would be really cool. And I'm like, Time of Trouble is kind of a poppy rock song, right? real hooky kind of thing. And, and then I'm like, oh, wait, this is Bob Weir, you know, one of two great interpreters of Bob Dylan. And, yeah. and, uh, and then I realized he was woodshedding Feathers for Bakersfield, and the next song on the CD is Time of Trouble, and he must have just, just let it play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then he got the light bulb, the bing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just been, it's been amazing that it's come together. We're up to 36 songs today. Wow. Probably going to be five LPs and, and, you know, it's just amazing. There really hasn't been any arm wrestling over songs. You know, no one's like, like, it is, but that's how many good ones there are. Yeah. You know, obviously some people wanted, uh, maybe California, but you know, shooter grabbed it first. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, even songs that I, I, you know, didn't think were really standouts when interpreted are like, this is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it's great. And, and, um, I couldn't be more pleased. It, it, it's going to fund the foundation that is going to give money and support to mental health care organizations. Um, and then I've already gotten some guitars out of Fender that we're going to be able amazing. to put into the hands of high school students in Neil's areas where he grew up in New Jersey and New York. Um, so these relationships are starting, and they're going to help folks. And I think that's the best way we can keep Neil Casal in the room. Well, man, that's like, that's incredible. 36 tracks. And, and uh, I think that's just a, such a beautiful tribute to him. And like you said, to to put instruments in, in young people's hands that you couldn't do. It couldn't be a better tribute. I didn't actually realize that you were from Richmond, Virginia originally. Yeah. And I'm curious yeah. a little bit of... Uh, your musical upbringing and, and how you ended up um, with a bass in your hands and like what your music, what your household kind of music scene was. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, this is a funny story, but I was adopted at birth and I was told about that um, pretty young, but I had a, I had really loving parents um, and I was an only child. And that was really the only thing that bummed me out about my childhood was I didn't have siblings, you know, I had to depend on when my friend's parents would, would let them out, you know, and, um, but my parents saw right away that I was like drawn to the piano and you probably, your parents probably have something similar, a a small Eric Krasno shrine of here you are sitting on your mom's lap, you know, 
playing a note on the piano. I got those too. And I remember crawling up under the piano and I could, I could like lay my foot on one of the sustain pedals and then reach up over top and just play a low note. And just, I loved the way the vibrations felt. I mean, the sound was one thing, but the like physical, they saw that that made me happy. And so I had a little Disney record player and I can remember those little Disney 45s. My mother denies the story, but this is how I remember it. And it's pretty good. So I'm going to keep telling it. A friend of my grandmother's son went to Vietnam. We're talking, you know, I was like four or five. So it's 1968, 1969, left a shoebox full of 45 RPMs. And she gave those to me. And it was everything from like Crimson and Clover to Sly and the Family Stone, Canned Heat, wow, The Who, all kinds. And it was just, and it like blew my mind. It exploded me, this four, five-year-old boy yeah. with no siblings Suddenly, these little seven-inch records with big holes were my best friends. Yeah. So then came the parade of instruments. Yeah. I, I had the cheese ball guitar and a little paper drum kit. Yeah. It, it, it might have actually said the Who on the kick drum. Um, That's And awesome. since I was frustrated pretty quickly by the drums, see if you can guess what happened to them. <laughs> Destruction. Pulled a Keith Moon. <laughs> yeah. It just went on where they'd buy me stuff like. Uh, CCR would put out a new single every every fucking month, it seemed. Right. And my parents deemed that far more desirable than Deep Purple. Yeah. Um, and so that really affected me. And I guess there, there were piano lessons in second grade, but I, I, I don't like, I don't, that was so staid to me. And so I bailed. My parents got divorced and my mom and I moved into the apartments. And I always wanted to play drums, always, but... That ain't going to happen when you're living in an apartment complex. Um, And I noticed that there were a lot of kids that played drums and a lot of kids that played guitar. And, you know, Paul McCartney plays the bass. He's pretty cool. Yeah. I wasn't aware of bass player jokes yet. (laughs) So I got a bass and I started banging around on it. And, of course, uh, around that same time, I, I became aware of the music of the Grateful Dead. I was probably 12. Yeah. And so I can remember going in and, you know, my poor bass teacher was was trying to teach me the bass line to obla di obla da because yeah. it's such a perfect example of uh, that position. And <laughs> I'm like, this is boring. And he's like, well, what would you prefer to learn? And I, so I handed him, I said, Dark Star. Wow. <laughs> and he just looks, he goes, are you sure you wouldn't rather play the piano? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, no. Um, but that was it. You know, I was I was cracked and I just, I played along with the records I liked to listen to. So it was everything from the Grateful Dead to Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, the blues came fast. You know, it was a lot easier to learn side one of the Almond Brothers live yep. at the Phil Maurice than it was side four. Right. So right. Um, I leaned in that direction. And then I had a cover band in high school that we played what was what was cool around 1980, 81. So it was some sort of like Eagles and Clash and... I guess the Stones had put out the go into a go-go. It was that era of the right, Stones. Right, right. Some cars, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and we just did that and we had fun. I graduated and went to University of Georgia. I was going to be a journalism major. I was going to write, write, yeah. write, write. Yeah. Left the bass guitar at home. Really? And uh, Yeah. I was, oh, I was a serious student, man. Wow. I was, 
so serious that I took a bunch of incompletes and dropped out of journalism school before Christmas <laughs> and dragged that, realized I was living in Athens, Georgia, where the B-52s and REM came from. Right. And, you know, had spent my fall quarter there sort of soaking in this amazing scene. Yeah, and that time period, too. That's it, REM was on the come up right then, right? They were they were poised to become a huge national act. Right. You know, um, I remember seeing them play at Legion Field, which is sort of that the on-campus outdoor venue. Gotcha. Uh, and it was right before the album Reckoning came out. Uh, in fact, they were so popular that the hipsters in Athens had already deemed them uncool. Right, right. Because no one had any idea that in the next five years, they were going to become the biggest band in the country. Right. And then... Two albums into their tenure with Warner Brothers, they were going to be the biggest band in the world, arguably. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was just, uh, I mean, we call Athens Mayberry on acid. Yeah. It was so cheap to live there. And so that's where I met Mikey and JB. Right. And we just, we, we just didn't want jobs. Yeah. That was really what it all boiled <laughs> down like to. It's like where it all starts for like <laughs> yeah. every band. is like, you know, we didn't want jobs and girls like rock and roll, you know? Right. I mean, what made you start playing the guitar, really? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, well, my brother had a band and he was he was older and I wanted to hang out. I wanted to hang out. The thing that made the big difference, big difference for me was like my, my dad, it was, I had piano lessons, I had the thing. But, you know, once it was like, oh, I, you know, I had kind of made the connection that I could make music that I loved once I and once I found something that was mine, you know, so it was right. like Led Zeppelin records that were, like my brother liked Van Halen and and all and then a bunch of other stuff. But when I found something that I could be like, wow, this is uniquely kind of like my little world and I can play along with these records. Um, that was that was the big change, because like I, I never wanted to read music. And I enjoyed hearing jazz and classical music, but it was like once I realized, oh, I can play along with this and this is cool. You know what I mean? And um, but it was also hanging around and, you know, and, and like you said, you know, it kind of becomes your I mean, I did have an older brother, but then like, you know, having a band was kind of a reason to hang out with your friends, too. You know, That's right. It's I mean, we had uh, in my high school band, the the other bass player who also played rhythm guitar and the drummer were identical twins. Interesting. And they were the youngest of five boys that yeah. their parents had brought up. So they had this big old house with the basement and the lesson that the parents had learned raising three other boys already was that if we make this basement a playground, we will never have to look for our kids at night. Yeah. And, that's a good point. and if we put loud electric instruments in their hands down in our basement, we will be able to tell that they're not doing terrible things, yeah, yeah, you know, and the drink, the drinking age was 18 at the time. So, you know, if you were 16 or 17, it really wasn't as like evil um, yeah. and bad parenting as it was nowadays um, because we were under their roof and we knew that we could always stay there. It was just a call to home to let our parents know we were staying there. So it was awesome. But I mean, really it was, you know, it was like a girl looked at me as something other than a, a nerdy freak. <laughs> yeah. And actually complimented me. I mean, I was never exactly the football type. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you, the guys that used to pick on me that were the football type, they heard the, the high school band play and they were like, the, I got a compliment. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it was like, wow, I, something I'm not failing at miserably. It was, it was the greatest feeling in the world. And then to watch people 
their faces light up right, when right. you play. So, yeah, I mean, that's how I wound up with a bass in my hand, and that's how I wound up in widespread panic was yeah. was meeting Mikey and JB and and down in Georgia, and we just we were having fun. Yeah. You know, it was it was Reagan's America, and uh, and we were having fun, and we got to where we made our first record on Landslide Records, a yeah. little indie label out of Atlanta, and uh, we were like. Well, I'm sure it'd be cool if we could have this on CD. You know, it's like the new hot thing, the yeah. CD in the year of 1988 <laughs> or whatever it was. Yep. And I remember Michael going, you guys aren't big enough to have a CD. You know, now it's totally the other way. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, anybody can have a CD. You're not, you, you don't have it in the budget to make vinyl. Right. But right. we finally got the CDs. They were delivered to us. We were playing a, a girl's college in Atlanta, Agnes Scott. Okay. And it was pouring rain and this homeless old man shows up with our CDs and we're like who are you and he goes my name is Colonel Bruce Hampton Michael Rothschild sent me over to deliver your box of CDs <laughs> wow like, sir yes sir and that was it man it was that was the beginning of uh the beginning of our ending really <laughs> yeah yeah how did uh, how did you connect with Landslide you guys were kind of creating a buzz in Athens well yeah we were creating a buzz and and uh you know like Athens is one of these weird towns where it's like the frat gig is like, it's a bad thing. Right. You know, it's, it's like bands that play original music don't want to do frat gigs. But Athens was such a bizarre intersection of art and a university that you could get away playing original music. Right. They would, these fraternities would pay you to play original music, not as much as they'd pay the, the National Cover Act. Yeah, yeah. But so we play like at the Fidelt House on Wednesdays and... And, uh, you know, it was a great chance to rehearse, drink some beer, meet some girls yep. and get paid. And we met this guy. This guy comes up and he's like, hi, my name is Phil Walden, Jr. And my dad was was Phil Walden, president of Capricorn Records. You know, maybe you heard of the Allman Brothers. Yeah. And, you know, and his brother, Alan, was the manager of uh, Leonard Skinner. Maybe you heard of them bands. And yep. we were yep. like, anyway, we're, we thought this guy's full of shit, you know, yeah. just another late night frat party thing. Yeah. Well, it turned out he wasn't full of shit and he became our manager. And I remember Phil was trying to start up Capricorn Records and it was in Nashville at the time. And so he booked us a gig at Elliston Square so that his dad could come see us play. And literally it was his dad, some random members of Jason and the Scorchers yeah. and a couple of the REM guys because they were in Nashville recording their third record for IRS. Um, and we did our thing and, and it was, you know, sort of a sad kind of low attendance night. And I remember Phil, you know, he's like a riverboat gambler, you know, this is the guy that managed Otis Redding, right. which also the guy that notoriously told Otis Redding he wasn't much of a whistler <laughs> after hearing Doc of the Bay. So That's funny. he's not batting a thousand, but we were super excited. We we're like, what, you know, what did you think? And all he really said was, well, boys, it's a big country. Yeah. Which was like, you know. <laughs> Keep working. Yeah. A nice way of saying keep working. And I'm glad he did because we did. We got to where we were doing 250 shows a year yes. around the country. Yeah. And uh, writing material all the time. And, and by the time that happened, uh, he had resurrected Capricorn and he was ready to put our, our record out. We'll be right back after this short break.
was that a conscious decision? Like, we're going to go out on the road and and uh, and just build this a grassroots following. No, nothing was conscious. It was all because we had to. Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, like so many of the things that every band now has to do, just because labels really don't mean much. The pipe dream of of getting a big advance, living high on the hog, making a golden record. Those things were usually those doors were usually shut for us because we just didn't fit in. Yeah. You know, we weren't punk enough. You know, we had too much hippie to be punk, and we weren't artsy enough. Um, you know, we just weren't enough of anything, but all that while we were becoming ourselves and no one could imitate us because we didn't know what we were going to do next. We had basically, we're all untrained and we learned how to play by playing together. And that's how we came up with the sound. So there were never any conscious decisions. They were made more out of how are we going to keep this thing afloat? And oops, I just blew up an amp. How are we going to pay for a new one, you know? <laughs> so we just worked our butts off. And I remember before we signed with Capricorn, there was a lot of interest from a label called SBK Records. Okay. There was a big, like, late 80s, early 90s label. Um, I think their biggest things were the soundtrack to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> um, was it C&C Music Factory? Oh, remember yeah. that? Yep, yep. And maybe Wilson Phillips Band. Okay. And yeah. it's like, why are they interested in us? So we'd, we'd do some demos and we'd send them over to them and they'd be like, this is a beautiful song, but why is there a four minute composed instrumental section in the middle of it? Like, cause we thought it was cool, you know, right, right. they're like, well, we don't know about that. And, and I, eventually they dropped a, a record contract, the size of a phone book right. on our laps. So we spent a lot of money you know, lawyers made all the money. Right, sorting through all that stuff. Yeah, and finally we said, this is stupid. And right around the time we were saying that, and it's like, it's getting to be two years between our first and our second record. That's not good for a young band at that time. And we had all this material ready to go, and Capricorn signed us, and, and we went to Nashville and made the, the first record, right. um, which is a, would be a double record today, but that's how much of a backlog we had. Were you guys an original band right from the get-go? Is it always like we went more, or did you guys start out with covers and start replacing with, with new material as you went along? Yeah, we, we never learned the book. We created and wrecked our own covers. Right. Um, right. And it was a lot of what you'd expect a bunch of guys who grew up listening to seventies FM radio to yeah. do, yeah. you know, it's like some, um, some grateful dead and some, some like James Taylor and Traffic, yeah. you know. We didn't know how to play those songs. We just knew how to like interpret them. But <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons that we we don't stop between songs is not because of like the Grateful Dead weave the songs together idea. It was more like we never knew how to end a song. <laughs> it's like we don't know how to stop this train. I mean, it's rolling. So let's just uh, figure out something. But I think the smartest thing we did was literally every time we wrote a new original song, um, we'd boot out a crappy cover. Right, right. You know, that we didn't do that well or whatever. And so while we got the sort of Grateful Dead band vibe, we never were a cover band. Right. Um, we were using those songs to learn how to play together. Yeah. Basically, they're, they were like exercises. Uh, learn how to get our sea legs on stage and, and learn how to just say fuck it in the middle of a song and dovetail off into something else that yeah. might have worked better for us. Yeah. It's always about us, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean. But as a result, um, 
you have this incredible following of amazing people, by the way, because I've gotten to do Panic and La Playa and, and various other events with you guys and gotten to know the fan base a bit. But um, they love being on the edge of their seat like that, which is why they keep coming back and following you guys show to show, um, because you guys don't do the greatest hits every night. You know, it's 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 it becomes something where they're a part of what you guys are doing. And it's of course it also makes it fun for you guys, but um it's ballsy. You know what I mean? You guys are putting yourselves out there one hundred percent um and and not necessarily saying, okay, we're gonna do this uh this routine every night. And uh was that something that evolved as you guys were doing all these dates all over the country, or was that kind of like a part of the concept when you started the band? When you only have like 12 songs and you're expected to play for two hours, yeah, um, you know, you start repeating and that just leads to insanity yeah. to repeat all those songs, unless the whole show is like Pink Floyd or the Stones, where it's like every lighting cue is, is down yeah, to the second. In. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that wasn't happening in nightclubs in 1987. So, um, you know, it was, we were fans of the Grateful Dead and we thought that that's a, that's a really cool thing. But like I said, there's never anything really conscious about what we did other than we just did not want to have to punch a time card. Yeah. Um, we never used a set list until around 1995 or 96 because at some point we realized that we were actually sort of leaning on a lot of the same songs. Right. Um, but it's because we didn't talk about what we were going to play. We yeah. wanted things to happen organically. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, some, and they did, for better or for worse, which is a great place to be. The fans, like you said, they're, they're, like, they're so into every aspect of it that yeah. we were starting to get some feedback. We're like, you know, hey, you guys play this song too much, and then you didn't play this other song right. the whole tour. Right. And it's like, really? We did? We didn't? Yeah. Is that what you're doing? And so we decided we would take a good long lit look at, at, at how we had done things up until that point. And, and I remember John Bell saying, okay, if we go down this road of having a set list, you know, it's, it's going to change things yeah. pretty much forever. And we'll always have to have a set list. And, and I was like, well, okay, but you know, set list is kind of just like a, a roadmap, you know, we yeah. can, we can take some back roads if we want. And, and so we did it and it, and it, it actually really helped yeah. um, because we had a master list and we had a, a, a tech named Gary Vereen, who was one of the very first techs we had um, sadly passed away a, a few years ago. Um, but he kind of got it. Yeah. He was like a great interface between fans and the band so he knew how we worked and he knew what we thought was silly. And, but he also understood the average widespread panic fans point of view. He would keep these little books and he devised this master list that was laminated and he had, uh, just like a, a, a dry erase marker. Yeah. And so he'd look at what we played the night before and cross those songs off the master list and hand it to us. You go, here's what's available today. And so that's kind of how this whole thing got started and it wound up getting color coded. And, and then we got to where we were trying not to repeat songs for five shows. Yeah. Um, which is a little bit more time than I'd prefer to spend on like dressing to go out than actually going out as it were. But, um, but you know, it, it, you're right. And, and we are incredibly lucky to have these fans. They stick with us. I mean, God, have they stuck with us? Oh, yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and there's one thing that, that I think they really get um, because they're multi-nighters. And, you know, it's like when you're doing like a 16-week tour of, of mostly one-nighters, there is like this thing that we realize is something's going down, you know. It's like tonight wasn't as great as last night. And then the third night, it's like this is – and then you hit bottom. And that can be really, you know, God, it can be just, it can just destroy you Yeah. when you hit bottom. But after you've done this enough to notice there's a cycle, it's like you learn to celebrate the bottom because it means then it starts going back up. Yeah. And yeah. over the course of 16 weeks, you know, you could maybe have a couple of those. And our fans started to get that too. Right, right. You know, and it's like, so they'd root us on, even though we were kind of headed downhill. Yeah. You know, it, it definitely doesn't happen as much because we don't tour like that anymore. We haven't toured like that in probably 25 years. Yeah. But um, they, they get that. And they're kind of like, they're my favorite kinds of fans because they want to be first in line. They want to be in the front row and they want to keep copious notes. And then they want to hyper analyze the show and rip it to pieces and critique it and tell you how you screwed up and, and what you could have done better. And then even if they hated the show, guess what? They're back on the rail the next night with a huge smile on their face and God love them. You know, I mean, I, I, I would probably be, you know, reporting, about yeah. something really boring, like human interest stories, if if I uh, if it weren't for those fans, I talked about this with Mayor with the Dead. It's like it's like you got your baseball cards. It's like okay, I went this night and they did this, and then we. Uh, I think they're going to do this tomorrow. What do you think? And blah blah. And it's like it's you know they're trading their stories and and uh, they're all like you said, they're just always in it for what's next. Uh, which I thought was I, just from being at the Panic in La Playa every year and talking to all the fans, and um, I get I, I kind of get their notes. I mean, I got I, I'm just there absorbing, and then a few as the years have gone by, I've started to know. Oh, when this song comes, man, everyone freaks out, and and then we're gonna bust this out, and they're probably gonna go into that, but maybe not. And, and it's been uh, really cool just to be kind of uh, a part of that and see that, you know, be a part of that fan base and, and watch it all go down. I think it was the last time I was there when uh, I came in and rehearsed with you guys a little bit. I kind of, you know, got to see the behind the scenes of how the set list comes together. And um, That's right. that was very interesting for me, too. And watching you guys like kind of go through what had already been done and like all these books. It was like I felt, you know, there was all these equations. And <laughs> oh, it's yeah, it's funny. You're definitely part of the family. You know, you've. You, uh, we love you and we love what you do down there. It's, it's the all-stars thing is, it's just a joy when we can stay and, and see that. It's been really cool to be a part of it. And I'm very, very thankful for that opportunity. And just, and also every year, I mean, we got George Porter and people like Ivan Neville and such an incredible crew every time.
it's great. I mean, I'm sorry it's not going to happen in 21, but I am. I'm praying on 22. Yeah, me too. To get man. back to it. Me too. And I know you guys obviously in 2002 had a major blow. You know, losing Mikey, um, who was obviously one of the original members and a huge part of the sound of the band and the inception of the band was was it hard to continue at that point did you think you guys would continue on yeah there was never any doubt that we wouldn't continue yeah. um and it was it was Mikey's wish yeah that we would continue um and i know it was hard for him because uh you know he, it was it was his nickname was panic right, you know the right. the name of the band was 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 in reference to him and his panic disorder. Right. So, I mean, it was, it was really tough. I think, I think any decisions we made that might not have been the best decisions that could have been made were simply because we were in shock, Right. you know, and, and we probably should not have continued on that summer tour, Yeah. but it, it was his wish to do it. And I'm glad that he did because it included gigs like the very first Bonnaroo. Right. Two nights headlining the first Bonnaroo yeah. um, and a gig in Dallas at the uh, outdoor shed there with uh, J.J. Kale opening. Wow. Who actually came and sat in with us wow. playing guitar uh, and on his own songs. But I'm not sure he recognized them as his own songs. Um, and then three nights at Red Rocks and and, uh, you know, and one more show in, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Yeah. And then he was like, I, I'm too. I, I got to go home. You know, and he was gone in a month. Right. Um, and we continued that tour. And, and then it was just like, we should have taken the time off. We shouldn't right. have finished that tour. But, you know, it's it's. Management was doing what they thought was best and and we just got by and it was an interesting time. And uh, I think it took a long time to recover, which is another thing that I'm really appreciative of our fans yeah. for. Yeah. You know, some of them. Just they couldn't they couldn't do it and they split. It's too hard for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was hard for us too. Every every fucking night. Yeah. Uh, and and talk about people being still in the room. There's been plenty of times on stage, plenty of times in the studio, where it's like we'd go back into the control room or we'd be in the dressing room after the gig, and it's like, did you guys hear that like phantom guitar? What was wow. that? You know, was it like a legit phantom harmony? You know, a conflation of of overtones, or yeah. and and people are like it didn't sound like that to me. Right. You know, it's like John, John, John Keane, rewind that tape. You know. Yeah. Was that Mikey? It, you know, and it's 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 just I think it's our ability to want want these people back in our lives, and and we're gonna find them yeah. no matter how. I, I've had dreams, and I know I'm not the only one in the band that I've had a dream once where. Um, like the band was fixing to go on stage. This has been like in the last couple of years. So it was like the Jimmy and Dwayne version of the band. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly Mikey's there. Yeah. And, um, and everything's cool. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's like a guy, you know, dude, you're dead. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's cool. You know, I mean, it's the way it is. And I'm like, okay, well let's jam, you know, and, right. and we all go out on stage and, wow. and play. And, and, uh, those are just, it's like the strangest dream because, you know, it's like this loving thing. And, and I had a dream with Neil in it the other night. Yeah. The first, first dream I've had where Neil showed up. Yeah. Um, and so this is, uh, it's all, 
it's just life, you know? I mean, we signed up to make music until it wasn't fun for us anymore. Yeah. And uh, then it becomes like a business. So maybe it's not as like rah, rah, rah fun, but it's like successful. And running a business is, you know, it's going to keep it successful and keep it fun. Right. And then things like this happen. Yeah. You know, where your founding member dies. Yeah. Um, or your drummer dies. Yeah. Todd Nance yeah. passed away. Yeah. And um, it, that's not fun at all. But the time on stage is a tribute to those guys. And it's still fun. Right. right. You know, we have uh, everybody in the band has certain things that kick certain emotions for them. And, it, you know, just because we play a certain song, it's not like the band is feeling a certain way. But someone might have asked to put that song in the set list that night because they knew it was going to help them through something. Right, right. You know, and I think everybody's got one, and every every one of those fans has one. And some of Mikey's songs were super hard to play. Yeah. It took us a, it took us a few years to get around to playing them. I feel that you guys were able to, I mean, obviously playing with Jimmy and with Dwayne, you know, you kept it in the family to a certain degree, you know what I mean? So it's like, and and also it seems like, you know, I know Mikey spent time with Jimmy and there was mutual admiration there. So it feels, it's not like, even though it's, I'm sure it's so hard to go back on stage and play these songs. It feels like you've assembled the right group of people um, to move it forward. Am I right? I I absolutely agree. Um, You know, Jimmy was always in, right. You know, he's, he was always, it was either, you know, everybody from the Aquarium Rescue Unit set in from time to time. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. Matt Mundy. Yeah. Uh, O'Teal. You know, O'Teal's one of the few people that I'm okay with having two bass players yeah. on stage. Yeah. Uh, P- George Porter's George, the other yeah, one, you know. George and O'Teal, yeah. And, uh, and Mike Gordon, you know, we yeah. can do that too pretty well. But, uh, you know, Jimmy was just like, he'd, he'd do something to Mikey. Yeah. You know, and he'd play off of Mikey and there's this very, very cool self-taught guy and more like concentrated, serious musician guy. And this dynamic would happen. So Jimmy was always in the family and he just had to finish his thing with Phil and then he was good. And we started feeling like things were were on the mend. I mean, we're talking this is a long morning period. Yeah. Um, and finding ourselves again, but we had to keep playing. Um, but then when Dwayne came in, it was like, Oh God, this is Jimmy's son-in-law. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. And Derek's little brother yeah. and Butch's nephew and, and Bruce and Bruce's, you know, protege of sorts, you know? Yeah. We got bruised again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's a joy, you know? And it's yeah. like certain things, that have really been lost for gosh, almost 18 years Yeah. Um, that I loved about widespread panic, which is like these, these songs that feel like a, a, a you know, a semi truck rolling down a mountain and there aren't any emergency exit ramps, you know, there aren't any runaway truck lanes, you know, it's like, you got to steer this thing into town, man, and then stop it. And uh, those feelings started coming back and man, it's thrilling. It's thrilling because this is the thing about extreme sports. You know, it's like, I think that you get a thrill from the first time you try something extreme and dangerous, and then there's a hole in your heart. So you want to like recapture that thrill. 
And uh, so you do something a little more dangerous. And that's how I felt like, you know, with Panic, it's like my sister went to Juilliard. You know, my half-sister that I met later when I met my birth parents, I was gifted with four siblings. So I didn't want to leave that part of the story open-ended from way back at the beginning. And uh, how old were you at that point? Or how, how, when was that? That was, uh, it was like 1991 okay. when I met my, uh, my half-sibs. And my, my little half-sister Lily had been through Juilliard, and she'd come see us play at Irving Plaza. Wow. She's at Garden State Performing Arts Center, you know. And yeah. she just was always in the front row. I'm like, what are you doing so close, yeah. you know? And she's like, I can't believe you guys do what you do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You go to Juilliard. Yeah. You got a scholarship to Juilliard. And uh, What was her primary uh, instrument? Violin. Okay. Yeah. And she got the scholarship by playing some incredibly, I don't know if it was one of the caprices or something, I yeah. don't know, but like a very difficult piece. Yeah. And, uh, and she wound up dropping out because she hated the competitive nature, the cutthroat competition of music school. But she's like, what you guys do scares me more than anything as a musician. I'm like, why? Because we suck, you know? And she's like, no, because you don't have this in front of you. And she right. slammed a piece of sheet music down. Right. And I'm like, well, that, all those black dots, they scare me more than anything. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a mutual appreciation of, of, of all of that. So your style is um, such a unique combination. And it makes sense as you kind of talked about the records you came up on and stuff. Because I hear some Phil in there. I hear P-Funk in there. Um, I hear, I hear you know, meters and I hear R&B. Um, and uh, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously blending that all together and also with the six-string bass. I don't know how long you've been doing the six-string, but you're also, you know, have kind of perfected the art form of the bass, the bass bomb, dropping the bomb. Yeah. A la Phil, but a la... The brown, we call it the brown note. <laughs> the brown note. Shapiro yeah. actually was on the show and told me about... Uh, um, we they were I think it had like got it had rained horribly at lock in and uh they were like, How are we gonna let everyone know we're coming back on stage? And they were like, Schools, drop the bass bomb. Yeah. <laughs> You'll, You'll hear hit, that all the way in Charlottesville. The, exactly. You'll hit the, <laughs> the campground. But did you have besides Phil, was there other bass players that kind of gave you that itch to to wanna play? Absolutely. I mean it was you know, the stuff that I listened to John Entwistle was was ah, okay. a big deal, yeah, you know, yeah. because and John Paul Jones, yeah, all the Zeppelin records, yeah, um, you know Larry Graham from the Sly Stone singles, yeah. Like, how does he do that? It sounds like a tight rubber band being snapped, yeah. you know. Little did I know that's actually how you do that kind of, yeah. And uh, you know, but it really all fell to place it together because in that moment when I was living in those apartments. And I had to let go of the idea of being Keith Moon or John Bonham. The song remains the same. The Led Zeppelin movie came out. And I'm sitting there like 12 years old at the Ridge Cinema in Richmond, Virginia, looking at, you know, a 30-foot tall Jimmy Page wearing dragon pajamas, yeah. going, look at all those girls. <laughs> 
Look at that guy's job. Yeah. That yeah. guy goes to work in his pajamas. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. And then it wasn't very much longer after that, maybe 1978 or 79, where the Who released The Kids Are All Right. Yeah. With that amazing footage of uh, Won't Get Fooled Again. Oh, yeah. Really, that was about the first time I really got to see John. It was will do his thing. Yeah. You know, there just really wasn't much opportunity up until that point to see him um, film-wise. just. Right. There wasn't really much MTV, and most people didn't have cable in 1979. So when that movie came out, I was like, holy shit, I want to do what that guy does. I want to be a bass player. Yeah. And like I said, everyone else was playing guitar and drums already. I, you know, what's the first rule of business? You know, find a hole in the market. And there just wasn't a bass player. Those two guys probably had more influence on me than anything. Right. John Paul Jones and of Zepp because of listening to Zeppelin and, and John Entwistle. And so the, the, the classic rock lineup, the, the drums, bass, guitar, and a vocalist, um, you know, the bass fills up a lot of room because it has to. And there's, a, there's an opportunity for it to get sort of fuzzed out for some glue. And, um, and that was it. And then when I started seeing the Grateful Dead uh, in concert, you know, the sound was so good. Even before the line array PA systems we have now, um, just those giant piles of boxes on either side of the stage. And uh, to get up there and feel Phil's amp and feel the sort of sense around of it was it was, you know, it would make your heart beat fast. Yeah. You know, when, when the drummers got on the beast and that shit started rumbling around an arena, um, my heart would beat. And so. I noticed that Phil was playing a six-string bass, and I, I was like, that's interesting. And I said, modulus? And so I came out to San Francisco in 19, it was New Year's 86, 87, or maybe 85, 86, I can't remember. Um, but we were staying with some people who actually lived at 710. Oh, wow. Yeah. They had, it was like the granddaughter of uh, Ernest or Julio Gallo. And the girl that I went to the show with had gone to Berkeley for a summer session, met their son, and it, they invited us to stay with them wow. on New, over New Year's. So wow. we were in San Francisco. The shows were in Oakland. And I'm like, modulus. I looked it up and it was, it was, in, and that's when I met Jeff Gould. Okay. I really, you know, I wasn't, the band wasn't anything other than we were sitting around King Avenue rec- practicing. Right, right. We probably hadn't even had a gig yet. I was probably missing a gig. Yeah, in fact, yeah. <laughs> you know, a house party gig to go see the dead on New Year's Eve. But I remember going to Modulus and I was just shocked that this sort of grumpy bearded guy actually let me hold one of these amazing basses. You know, to me, it blew my mind. This is that you invented this. And, and I was like, this is awesome. And it took about another four years and it was O'Teal that hooked me up with my first Modulus. Wow. Cool. Yeah. He found a dealer in Knoxville that had one and, uh, and I brought it in, and I think I played it on a little bit of our first Capricorn record. I drove all the way from Nashville to Knoxville one afternoon, met the guy, paid him, picked up the bass, brought it back, and started learning how to play a six-string bass. And it and it always had been four before that? It had always been four, and there was a brief flirtation with five. Yeah. I'm so symmetrically oriented that it, it didn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I needed the six. and And it worked for Panic because... I needed those extra five low notes. Yeah. Those guys love playing cowboy chords and, and chunky power chords and things. And, 
And uh, it was just, a you know, with the crappy rigs and PAs we were playing, I just, there was no palpable bass. Yeah. It couldn't get through that stuff. And then on occasion, Mikey would, would like get tired of playing solos and, and nod at me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like take one, Dave. And, and so I had a whole lot of neck to work with. And right. I had people right. like O'Teal teaching me, you know, he'd show me some chords and stuff that I could play voicings and things. And, and it was invaluable. Yeah. Um, but really it was, I only like to play it with widespread panic. Yeah, you know, yeah. it'll be a gun in my arsenal in the studio for other, other things. But like on the hard work in Americans first record, I played it on one song just because I wanted that ability to have a low D without drop tuning. Right. Right. But I'm a traditionalist, you know, because I liked, I, you know, I've got one of John Entwistle's basses wow. that I actually bought from Sotheby's wow. in an auction. Wow. It's the one from the, uh, the Who Are You really? video that you saw. It's a salmon yeah. pink Explorer bass with a cool. fender neck on it. Wow. <laughs> and gold hardware. But other than that, I'm I'm like a Fender guy, you yeah, know. I like yeah. I like my jazz bass. I got a '61 jazz bass. Looks like it's been through a meat grinder. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a '66 P. Oh man, and that's sounds like the hammer of the gods. Yeah, so yeah. I'm uh, I, I'm happy. I love guitars. Olympic has made me guitars. They made me a an explorer out of wood from Johnny Cash's house. Wow. Yeah. Um, which is it's called Cashwood, and it's got red, white, and blue stars on it, and. And uh, I just thought it was perfect for hardworking Americans. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Tell me a little bit about the inception of that project, Hardworking Americans. You know, we had met Todd Snyder in the early 90s when he had a, he had a song called uh, Talking Seattle Grunge Rock Blues, which was a hilarious song about like everybody moving to Seattle to try and make it as a grunge band. And, and then I think the last line of the song is, uh, uh, I guess I'll just pack up my acoustic guitar and go back to Athens. You know, it's like someone scene hopping, yeah. you know, trying to make it big. But, uh, we met him on that tour. He had a band called the nervous Rex, right. um, with Will Kimbrough opening for us. And then I didn't, you know, he sort of fell off the radar, but, uh, I, I'd see that he was making great records, you know, signed with Prine's label, signed with Buffett's label. And, yeah. Um, and then I ran into him backstage when Panic was doing um, shows with the Allman Brothers on their 40th anniversary tour. Yep. We played Municipal Auditorium in Nashville, and and Todd came up and introduced himself, and and uh, we caught up, didn't think much of it. And then all of a sudden, a month or two later, I get a call, hey, uh, I got this gig in Napa, you want to play it with me? And uh, knowing what I know about Todd, I said, yes, but only if we rehearse. Yeah. And so I, I thought I had him by the by the short and curlies on the rehearsal. Cause he's, he loves to fuck with you on yeah. stage. And so we went and rehearsed and I said, can I bring a drummer friend? I brought Paolo Baldi from, from cake and, yeah. and Claypool's band. And, yeah. and we rehearsed and uh, I felt confident and we get on stage at the opera house or whatever place it was in Napa. And, uh, 
God damn, if he doesn't change the keys on us, right? you know, and I'm right. like, got all these songs, but we had a good time and he had fun. And, and the next thing I know is I'm getting a call. You want to produce a record? I've got this idea for a band. Yeah. And uh, I said, what's the idea? And he goes, well, I like jam bands, but I'm one of these poetic songwriters, storyteller guys. And my peers, they just look down their noses at jam bands and musicians who can play good. They don't think any of them can write good songs. Yeah. And he goes, and I know from my jam band friends that most of the singer songwriter stuff kind of bores you guys because it's all over the same three chords. There's yeah. not a lot of musicality. And I'm like, so what's the solution? He goes, well, I want to curate some songs from that I think are great songs from, from my peers and, and people I respect. And, uh, you know, let's put some great musicians together and see what happens. Yeah. So that was really the whole idea. And we gathered together with the songs that we had, that Todd had curated. And uh, it was, you know, me and Dwayne Trucks and Neil Casal yeah. and uh, Chad Staley and Todd Snyder. And we got together at Bob Weir's place, TRI, and uh, we just deconstructed those cover songs. Yeah. You know, we took Kevin Kenny's Straight to Hell, which everyone knows is a lighters in the air, you know, I'm going straight to hell. Yeah. And just turned it into, we changed the key to like C minor or something and just made it so sad. Yeah, yeah. And did it like a ballad. And uh, and we we just, we had a fun time. And we didn't realize that it might have legs, you know. Right. I was just like, I'm produced the record. I don't really want to be on tour and they talked me into doing a promo tour for the record yeah. and uh that's when i got to know neil best right and we realized really fast like two or three shows into the tour that holy shit this band's got a hell of a lot more gears than we thought yeah and we so we literally did 12 shows and then ended a tour a mini tour in chicago and went into the studio for three days and recorded eight of the like 12 songs that are on our second record. Wow. It was amazing. Do you think that there'll ever be uh, another version of that band or any more music from that, from that uh, concoction? Nothing set in stone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nothing set in stone, but really I feel like it was, it, it was really bright and we made some really great music, especially the live record, yeah. which is a wonderful tribute to the rock and roll God that Neil really is yeah, yeah. deep down inside. Yeah. Um, you know that he really let his rock and roll hair down yeah. with that band, yeah. and and it was it was a joy. And you know we made a third record, and uh, it basically we got shelved. You know right, it just right. it wasn't happening, and the band kind of just is on hiatus. Right, right. Um, although I will say that one of those tracks from that recording session at the Cash Cabin um, just came out. John Carter son of Johnny Cash just put out forever words volume two. Yeah. Yeah. And the song big hearted woman is on there oh. and the forever words project for any listeners that might not know is John Carter found notebooks of his dad's songs that had never been recorded. And so he parceled them out. So he gave one to Todd, um, called big hearted girl. And we were in the studio and we cut the track recorded the music and I had me and Vance Powell mixed it wow then it just it never happened but John Carter called me up and he's like I want to put this out and I'm like man I'd love to have that music out there please go for it
So that was, uh, that's out there. It's, it's brand new. Very cool. Very cool. What initially fueled um, your passion for producing records and becoming a producer? <laughs> I'm a control freak. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. What's your answer? <laughs> Shit. You know, for me, I also was kind of obsessed with what a producer did when I was younger. You know what I mean? Which I don't even know exactly if there is a straight answer for that. But, um, you know, looking at old records and and seeing the all the great musicians on there, and then I'd be like, the producer, like, what's going on there? Come to find out there's a million different versions of that answer. That's right. Um, and I just knew I wanted to do it. I didn't even know what it was when I, when I first, uh, started figuring out that I thought that I wanted to do it, but I loved being in the studio. And for me, I was really fortunate in the beginning of recording, uh, soul live and various other bands that I was in. I got to work with great producers and engineers and just kind of never wanted to leave the studio. You know, and I just wanted to learn from them. And I was that kid asking all the questions and wanting to know what this did and what that did and why, why, why this made that do that. And, you know, just down rabbit hole, you know, it's the same thing. I couldn't tell you what a producer does. Yeah. um, Even after having done all the production work I've done. But around 1993, we had been working with Johnny Sandlin. I came back home and these friends of mine had a band called Hayride, sort of a punky, minute-minish kind of Athens band. Yeah. Great songs, great musicians. And they're like, hey, would you produce our record? And I was like, um, uh, hold on a second. So I called Johnny Sandlin. I'm like, hey, man, um, these, these friends of mine, they want me to produce, produce their record. What the, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And Johnny was very patient, very, very slow moving, a total groove detector kind of guy, you know. And he goes, oh, well, Dave, uh, I tell you what. If you hear anything that you're not sure about, you're going to want to just go ahead and fix that. Otherwise, you're going to have to live with it forever. Mm. And so I kind of took that as let me guide these guys to what they, they, they're trying to get and let me maybe keep them from letting a mistake go by um, or a shaky arrangement or something like that. And in that case, you know, it's more than just musical knowledge. It's, it's uh, being a producer, you know, you become the psychologist and you become, you know, um, the guy that that it's re- and, and the whole thing of like creating the right vibe in the room that that's a really important thing um and not everybody that has really great arrangement and and uh and engineering and musical skills can do that you know cuz a lot of times you also have to be selfless as a producer and and in certain cases uh pretend the idea wasn't yours you know and it was someone else's um and really get the best performance out of the artist, right? In, in performance, meaning um, the the track and the vocal and all of it and the sound. Um, so yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey for me because it's uh, I learn so much every time I make a record, you know, because it's kind of like you learn how to be decisive you know what i mean and and because like you said when things come up in the moment that decision is for can be forever 
So, you, you know, once you've kind of been at that crossroads a few times, you know, okay, this is the instinct, you know, that I'm that we should all go with here and when to really stick to your guns <laughs> and push that right. agenda. That's um, right. You know what I mean? And hope that after you, that everyone hears the playback, they go, oh man, you were right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's. There's a there's a certain bedside manner that instills confidence. Yes. That I don't think it comes yes. naturally to many people. I think it's like some studio thing that's passed down, you know. Yeah. And you have to have worked with with people who really um, worked around older cats. Yeah. Who had worked with older cats. Yeah. And it's like when I can absorb that sort of bedside manner, there's sort of a a, a disarmament through dry humor kind of yep. thing that can happen. Um, a little sarcasm goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and then just confidence, you know, just like you guys, you know, you're the least objective. Yeah. Those, those guys in the, in the tracking room. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got this pane of glass here, which yeah. separates me from you. And therefore, you know, but I have an outside ear and it's not beholden to whatever toxic dynamic is going on in the tracking room or, or, I don't know, fluffing dynamic. Right. Sometimes that happens, but it's like you guys are, are pussyfooting around each other and the track ain't happening. You know, if you guys want to go get mad, I'll go out and I'll buy a bottle of tequila and we will sit in the lounge and I'll get drunk as hell and fight. And we'll come back and do this thing tomorrow, you know, or we can try it again now. You know, I remember watching Johnny Salen told a story of, of a, a local band he was working with and, and they were fighting, trying to get a take. Yeah. And uh, he's like, man, why don't you guys go outside and smoke a joint? Yeah. You know, clear the air. And they're like, oh, well, we don't smoke pot. He's like, well, why don't you guys, uh, you know, there's a bar down in the industry. Why don't you guys go down and have yourself some, some beer, have some drinks, you know, get some fresh air. Well, uh, we don't drink either. And he's like, geez, here's a roll of quarters. Go hit the pinball machine, you know. But yeah. just understanding that sometimes you just, it's like when you're tripping and things aren't going well. Yeah. Maybe we should go outside. Yes. Reset. And breathe some fresh air. <laughs> yeah, a little refresher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's just, there, you're right. There's like, a, you know, there are so many hats you can wear. And I think it's really important that you have, we surround ourselves with a good team. Right, right. Um, you know, I had to make a decision playing so many gigs that I just wasn't going to be able to really learn engineering. Yeah. You know, if if I had a little more man, I could have been super productive during this coronavirus yeah. thing here at home, yeah. but I never did. So it's always been in my best interest to have a really amazing and insightful and technically wonderful engineer right. um, so that I can work on more of the psychological bit. And, and uh, you know, really, I think all of us producers, we can say stuff about, oh, we want to help the artist achieve their their ultimate vision. Yeah. But in the end, aren't we kind of making records that we dig ourselves? That's I mean. that's part of it too. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And I think like that taste, you know, I think that's number one as a producer is you got to have great taste. You know what I mean? That's right. And um, apply, you know, how to apply that. You know what I mean? Um, that's right. But I, you know, there's so like, but again, there's just so many ways to do it because I think there's some producers. Um, that really just kind of get out of the way and make sure the songs are great. They're really just like song selectors. And then there's like really heavy handed producers that you're going to sound like them. You know what I mean? Like a Lee Scratch Perry or, 
Or, or Brian like, Eno. Or Brian Eno, where like when you go into yeah. their world, it's very much about their world. And a lot of times you're in their studio, but you're going to them because of that. You know what I mean? Because right. like I wanted, I want, you know, or like the Black Keys and like Dan Auer, like, you know, you go to their studio and, and you want to sound like that, you know? Um, that's the, the that's treatment you want. That's right. Exactly. And then, uh, so it's, it's just, it's such an interesting job. I've talked to people about it at length that don't really know what it is. And I'm like, well, just so happens, I don't really know either. Besides, right. besides the fact that we're trying to make a great record. You know what I mean? And how we get there, we learn with each project kind of a new way of how to chisel our way there. That's abs- absolutely you're right. And I can't think of one production I've had where I didn't wind up loving the songs. Right. You know, someone asked me one time, uh, one of my many uh, Charmed Life mentors was like, so with Panic not doing as many shows a year, you're going to have more time to produce. Do you think that you know, you could produce an artist whose music you don't necessarily enjoy. And I said, hell no, I don't think I could, you know, why would I want to do that? But then I realized that uh, I can always find something yeah. to enjoy about, and, and I realized one of the greatest ways to appreciate someone's music that you might not necessarily appreciate is to actually befriend that person. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I mean, that even happened with REM. Yeah. When I first heard them, I was like, okay, this is cool. Kind of sounds jingle jangly like the birds. But once I met those guys, I, I got an intuition um, into their thing. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, I get it. I love this stuff. This is amazing. It's crisp and it's fresh. Yeah. And um, so I found that to happen with a lot of artists, especially ones that wanted a little more development yeah. work out of me. Yeah. Cause, because digging into what makes a person likable um, – is such an insight into their music. Yeah. Um, and so like in the case of uh, this woman, Laura Reed, um, who I uh, just released a single called Surrender, um, she had been working with Blue Rose and had been doing, a, she had a lot of history with like P-Funk yeah. um, and a lot of soul and some, some pretty urban work. And the label didn't really know what to do with her. So I was asking her, just send me songs, send me, you know, Send me living room demos. Yeah. And this song called Surrender, it's just her sitting on her bed playing her uke. Right. But it had that thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, that we all look for. I was yeah. like, bam, I got it. I'm like, oh, my God. I, I, so I started sending her, like, Peter Green era Fleetwood Mac. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, some tough stuff, like some some uh, some free. Yeah. You know, because she can really, she's got a tough voice and she's got an amazing range. But this song Surrender had tenderness to it and a hook that I could not believe. Yeah. Um, and so it all came through in a flash. And the next thing I know, she's gotten the band together and it's Lauer Yometz, yeah. who, you know, the Estonian Wunderkind guitar player. Yeah. yeah. And, and Eric Cab, who I think you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's my guy. Yeah. And, um, and then me on bass. And we went into Vance Powell's. And, you know, Laura was like, I love this Green Man Alishi song. And I'm like, that's heavy, man. And so we made it heavy. And the Surrender song has got the tenderness and the like. But getting to know her, I realized she was super well-traveled and loved all kinds of music and would just take things in and then put them out with her own artistic spin on them. So I'm like, this is is what I'm talking about. This is someone whose music I just couldn't get. Yeah. 
but I met her and then she pulled me in and it's just, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, making friends that way. Yeah. We learn something, we make new friends and, uh, you know, I, I, there, there are people that I really wouldn't necessarily hire again that yeah. I've run across in my decades of, of making records, but really no one I didn't like. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the arsenal at, that you have at your behest yeah. to color an artist's vision right. with your friends. I mean, that's just, it's amazing, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think that is really important. I find that the most fulfilling projects for me were ones where there was a lot of conversation and getting to know, if you didn't already know each other, getting to know the person on a, you know, deeper level, you know, it's rare that I get together with someone in one afternoon and we just like crank out the best work. You know what I mean? It, right. Not that that can't happen, but, uh, the work that's really going to be, that's going to stand the test of time. Um, you know, I feel like you got to get some, you got to get some conversations in to really get there. You know what I mean? That's right. Um, but that's that's interesting, you know, because like not a lot of I, I think that you and I have that in common because I, I, I don't like it's also at this point uh, in my life. I don't ever want to do anything that I'm not like emotionally invested in, <laughs> you know, uh, I totally get that. You know, so that that's that's really cool. Um, well, man, I hope that you and I get to to make some music again soon. <laughs> Sooner than later. I hope so, too, man. That was so much fun in new orleans and uh also at gyms i mean yeah i think we're lucky because the studio work is certainly going to come back sooner than the live work right this is true um and i'm sure the flaming lips bubble concert is going to go off swimmingly <laughs> um but i don't see that as really the future of, yeah of live performance Me um Me i think it's really cool and i i wouldn't mind being there with a head full yeah um but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but I think we're really lucky, and and maybe we'll get to do some some playing together in your fabulous studio. Or, I would love that. You know, I, I I can't imagine you wanting to drift too far away from home with that little nugget you got. Yeah. But you know, maybe we'll make our way up north. Um, but yeah, that would be fun, and I can't wait to hear all the 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 Neil tracks. Do you, do we have a, a release date on any of that stuff yet? Yeah, we're looking at uh, record store day of 2021. 2021. 2021. Yes beautiful um april 20th well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and also just a personal thanks for always having me and at uh, panic and la playa and various other things that we've done together it's always been such a, a pleasure to work with you man oh you too i love you eric love you too man I want to thank Dave Schools for being on the show. Such a great dude. Such a pleasure to talk with him and hang with him. And before we go, I'd like to play a song by Widespread Panic. This one's called Up All Night. Savannah, the Bay Street move, and I went 
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.